Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24. This week, with the Brazilian elections in sight, we look at Brand Brazil. Plus, another election that caused a commotion this week, this time in Italy. Far-right Fratelli d'Italia leader Giorgia Maloney looks set to be the country's next Prime Minister after Sunday night's election results. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And to start the show, this month of September, I've stayed in Brazil to cover the elections for Monaco. I wrote about the value of brand Brazil and what's at stake at this weekend's election. Let's have a listen. This country, no matter how much we invest in tourism, nobody comes here. It's important that we change. Brazil is a happy country. There was presidential candidate Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva talking about tourism in Brazil. And I must agree with him. Brand Brazil is feeling a bit battered at the moment. But we can't fault only the incumbent President Jair Bolsonaro. Brazil has historical underlying problems. Social inequality is at its worst, and it did increase over the last year. But it is undeniable that the erratic president has been affecting the country's image with his fiery speeches that at times put democracy in question. He also always manages to offend someone every time he speaks, including world leaders, and in the case of France, even their partners. I've been living abroad for 15 years now, and I have become accustomed to people smiling when I say I am Brazilian. Despite all our problems, Brazilians are friendly and warm, no doubt about that. Simply put, as people will give off a good vibe. When I mention I'm from Brazil, some people used to think of this. Or this. Which is great, but in recent years not that many smiles have been given when mentioning my nationality. Some are very straightforward saying, oh, I'm sorry about your leader, or asking, what about the Amazon? Is it safe there? For a proud Brazilian like me, it is a bit hard to hear it at times. So in some ways, the 2022 election will be a crucial one for what I will call now Brand Brazil. We need that positive image back. We need to return to the world stage and play our important diplomatic role. From climate issues to agriculture, Brazil is an important player. I've been back in Brazil now for three weeks for my election coverage from Monaco and I've met so many interesting people with incredible projects who give me a little bit of hope for the future of my nation. I am not saying one candidate will be the salvation of the country, certainly not, 
but I must admit that the lack of new leadership at the top political positions in the country saddens me a bit. I really hope that the next election provides a chance for a strong reset. But for now, the country must fight back against any sort of populism or angry rhetoric. As candidate for senator Márcio França said in a press conference a few days ago, Brazil became an angry country, and that is not a good sign. Being here, I can feel the tension in the air when the topic of elections comes up. Because of the virulent polarization taking place, you almost have to be careful when talking to someone about whether or not you can truly speak your mind. It's a shame for people like me who actually enjoy talking about politics, but peacefully, even when we disagree. Brazil, I wish you luck on the 2nd of October and hope for a welcome return to the world stage. From Monaco, in São Paulo, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And while in Brazil, more particularly São Paulo, I spoke with Sérgio Dávila, editor-in-chief of Brazil's celebrated daily Folha de São Paulo. We discussed fake news and the challenges on covering this election in particular. It's a very busy election season. We are in a polarized country right now, but I don't think that's the main uh, issue. Polarizing uh, elections are not necessarily new in, in Brazil. I mean, Dilma Rousseff against Aécio Neves was a very polarized election. Even if you go way back, Fernando Henrique Cardoso uh, against Lula was a very polarized election. The thing, that the difference in, in this uh, season is that we have an incumbent, we have a president, a sitting president, President Bolsonaro, who is very aggressive towards uh, the, the professional uh, journalism and the press, uh, the independent press. And, and even perhaps because of Folha's independence, because Bolsonaro many times during his government, he singled out Folha as well, saying, wow, this newspaper. Uh, and, and, and I have actually, we're sitting in a room close to a lot of the historic front pages. There's one from the 28th of June, 2020, where Folha defend the democracy, actually. So it's interesting that you felt the need to do that in a way as well, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, new for us, and it, it's sad that we, you have to remember people uh, decades after the end of dictatorship that there's this value, this, this uh, m most important value called democracy, and that we support democracy, and you should too. This decision came from uh, uh, a fact that it was uh, uh, astonished for, for us. We, we did a poll and uh, we actually we had access to, to data uh, where more than 50% of uh, Brazilian population wasn't born during the dictatorship. So dictatorship was a thing of the past, a, a memory that they, they even they don't have. So. We felt the necessity to remind this or, or to enlighten these people uh, saying this is dictatorship, this is democracy, this is why democracy is bad, way better than dictatorship. Because, of course, what was the, 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 the main reason for us to do that? President Bolsonaro is a, is a supporter of dictatorship. He, he always says good things about the, the, this terrible period of time in Brazil. So we felt the need to say to people, uh, he's wrong, this is not true, this is uh, 
the, the horrors of dictatorship, and, and this is why democracies, uh, as as Churchill said, that the, it's not the, the perfect system, but it, it's it beats all the the alternatives. And Sergio, in 2018, I mean, fake news was a huge problem in Brazil. I mean, massive. I never seen like this before. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel that the big media outlets, including yours, you kind of learned a little bit how to tackle it. I do think this election, perhaps it's less of a problem, or, or not. What, what do you think? That's, that's my impression from, from what I can see. Well, fake news exists since news exists. So uh, every time you have uh, someone telling or trying to tell the truth, you have someone tell, trying to tell the opposite. So uh, fake news is, is a thing of uh, our uh, profession from the beginning, centuries ago. But uh, yes, I agree with you that uh, that was uh, the main issue of 2018. Fake news was a big issue, uh, I think, not a small part of uh, uh, Bolsonaro's victory is, is due to the spread of fake news by then. We ran a headline uh, back then by Patricia Campos Mello, one of our main reporters, uh, that, that exposed this, this uh, that groups of uh, uh, businessmen were paying for uh, uh, fake news WhatsApps being spread uh, between the first and the second round of 2018 election. That was a, maybe what was the big scoop in, in that election. But I think that since then, all the professional news outlets and, and the government, TSC, uh, the, the electoral uh, court, and most important, the big tech companies, they did their homework and uh, they are more prepared to, to deal with fake news today. But I think all the, the actors involved in, in bringing good news to, to the people are more prepared to, to deal with this issue right now. The Monocle Daily wraps up the day in Europe every weekday at 1800 London time. Every edition of the show features panelists from the Daily's rota of experts. Those big questions are always important when it comes to politics. Plus reports from Monocle 24's correspondents around the world. Some hope Sunday marks the end of a chapter in Chile's recent history. And interviews with authors, politicians and pundits. It's kind of a ghost story, but you're not really sure. And also listen out for the Daily's On This Day historical feature and Henry Rees Sheridan's Letters from New York City. Unless you work at a bin factory, you don't get to see too many brand new bins in your life. The Monocle Daily, taking a wider, deeper and occasionally lighter look at the news. You are listening to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And finally, more on the Brazilian elections. I paid a close look at the gubernatorial races. You know, you have to look at those names if you want to think about the presidential ticket in 2026. In the battle between Jair Bolsonaro and Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, many people forget that Brazilians are not only electing a new president, but also 27 state governors, 27 senators, and our whole Congress, a grand total of 513 MPs. Oh, and state representatives as well, but that's a long story. Let's first focus on the governors. It's a job that comes with a lot of power. If you are the governor of a state, 
you already stand with a fair chance of becoming a presidential candidate in the future. Let me give you a quick roundup of the most important governor races. Starting with the most populous state, and also my own, São Paulo. With its 44 million people, it generates a third of Brazil's GDP. And considering the importance of the state, being its governor is arguably the second most important position after the president. São Paulo has been governed by the center-right PSDB party for almost three decades, since 1995. Because of this, some people jokingly refer to the state as Tucanistan, Tucaniston, as the Tucan is the animal symbol of the PSDB party. Even though the party has lost some of its popularity since its heydays, it might still have a chance to win in the state. The current governor, Rodrigo Garcia, belongs to the party and is vying for re-election. Garcia has been governing the state only since April, after his predecessor, João Doria, resigned in order to try his luck as a presidential candidate. Things really didn't work out for Doria because of polling issues, so in the end, he resigned from the world of politics. But Garcia will have to work hard if he wants to get to the second round. Leading the poll is Fernando Haddad, from the Workers' Party. He's the former mayor of São Paulo City, the capital of the state. Although he is leading, Haddad knows it's a tough battle between candidates in São Paulo's countryside, who usually reject his left-wing party. Tarcísio Gomes de Freitas, the Bolsonaro candidate, is second, but there has already been some controversy. He is actually from Rio, and when asked in an interview where he votes, he couldn't really name it, he didn't seem to know. So where's your polling station? Where do you vote, just out of curiosity? Uh, uh, college? But do you know the neighborhood so we can tell which college it is? Uh, um, hmm. Ah, you don't remember, okay. If Haddad wins, it'll be a massive feat for the Workers' Party. In Rio, the Bolsonaro candidate and current governor, Claudio Castro, is leading. It's also where Bolsonaro's political career started. Castro's main opponent is leftist Marcelo Freixo. It's worth noting Rio is a city divided by social class and location. So while Freixo does well among the liberal elite in Rio's wealthiest enclave, former gospel singer Castro resonates with evangelicals. In the northeastern state of Bahia, the leading candidate is sliding in the polls after a curious controversy about his skin color. After appearing on TV more bronzed than usual, ACM Neto from center-right Union Brasil changed his color in the official register to mixed race, or pardo, as we say in Brazil. Previously, he was listed at white, and it seems the largely black population of Bahia isn't buying into it. As a result, the Workers' Party candidate, Jerônimo Rodrigues, has been climbing up the polls. If elected, he will be the first indigenous governor in the country. It's no wonder some people laughed at ACM Neto's declaration. Here is the reaction of a Global News presenter. He's declared himself as pardo, and in the video he appears bronzed, which has caused a stir on social media. So whether white or mixed race, 
Assemineto does not have a guaranteed victory anymore. There is also a question of gender diversity in the states. The reality is very few women are in position to win governorship. In 2018, only one state voted for a female governor, Rio Grande do Norte, with Fátima Bezerra from the Workers' Party. She is likely to be re-elected, and this time she might be joined by others, like Marília Reis in Pernambuco. And although Brazil did turn very right-wing in the Bolsonaro years, there are some glimpses of acceptance. Last year, the governor Eduardo Leite from Rio Grande do Sul came out as gay. He's the current favorite for re-election in a state that doesn't tend to re-elect its governors. Eu sou gay. I am gay. I am a governor that is gay. Not a gay governor. So while the whole world will be watching who will win the battle between Lula and Bolsonaro, if you are into Brazilian politics, pay attention to the governor races. You might hear their names again in the presidential ticket in 2026. And this week's Giorgia Meloni became Italy's first women prime minister at the head of its most right-wing government since World War II, after leading a conservative alliance to triumph at last Sunday's election. Monaco's Europe editor at Stalker sent us a report from Milan. Italy's political landscape has taken a sharp turn to the right. Far-right Fratelli d'Italia leader Giorgia Maloney looks set to be the country's next prime minister after Sunday night's election results, although some counting remains, confirmed it as the dominant political party. In a result that favours forming pre-election coalitions, she will govern alongside another hard-right party, Lega, and Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia. The right-wing coalition is set to have clear majorities in both houses, but if the centre and left-wing parties had been willing to form their own pre-vote coalition together, Italy would have woken up to another story, as they would have had the numbers to form their own government. The centre-left Democratic Party did less well than had suggested, while there was a late surge for the populist five-star movement. Mololi appeared to her supporters at 2.30am local time and looked to strike a conciliatory note, saying she would govern for all Italians and now was the time for responsibility. Her party, which won only 4% of the vote in 2018, has post-fascist roots and she has been an open admirer of Mussolini in the past. In the weeks up to the election, she looked to soften her tone, supporting Ukraine and saying she wanted to stay inside the European Union. Question marks remain as to how she will govern as Prime Minister, with immigration set to be a key theme alongside a bid to lower taxes. For now, Europe's right is celebrating with Spain's Vox and Hungary's Viktor Orban among the earliest to congratulate her. For Monocle in Milan, I'm Ed Stocker. Thank you, Ed. For more on Giorgia Meloni becoming Italy's first woman prime minister, let's have a listen from Rome, journalist Megan Williams. Giorgia Meloni's party, Fratelli d'Italia, or Brothers of Italy, uh, getting about 26% of the vote, which was more or less what um, most polls had had indicated. Um, the second most popular party is the Democratic Party, the center-left, but they're under 20%, uh, so they've, they've dropped. And um, as we just heard, the, the populist five stars had a, had a sort of last-minute surge 
this is a party that has has uh, veered to the left, uh, and its its leader is now Giuseppe Conte, who was Italy's prime minister for a while. So they did fairly well. Uh, but but the most interesting thing about Giorgia Meloni's center right coalition, and that's the coalition that she's formed with Silvio Berlusconi and um, Matteo Salvini is that she really has the vast majority of votes with, with this 26%. Uh, her two partners took, you know, seven, eight percent, which is quite a dip, particularly for Salvini. Mm. What was the turnout? The turnout was low. And in fact, it was about 64%, about 10% less than uh, the elections four years ago, and Meloni herself addressed that in her her victory speech at at two thirty in the morning here at a hotel in Rome. I, we all stood around and waited for that. Uh, she said she was very disappointed that Italians don't understand how important it is to vote. And one of the things that she would like to do is to increase a, a, a sense of uh, importance among Italians of, of government institutions and, and, and the need to participate. Mm. Well, is there a particular demographic that supports Maloney and her party? Uh, I think it, it, it's hard to say. I mean, Italy is an older country, uh, but this this particular election, uh, the age limit dropped for people voting for the Senate. It used to be that you had to be 25 to vote for the Senate. Now you can be 18. So there were about 4 million more younger voters. But it's really not clear yet how many um, what the percentage is of those younger voters who who were attracted to Meloni. Now, Meloni backs Ukraine, but that's not true of her coalition partners. What will this mean for the war and how has the EU reacted to this swing to the right? Well, her partner, Matteo Salvini, who has been interior minister in Italy, who's who's anti-migrant and very pro-Putin traditionally, uh, he's against the sanctions, the Western sanctions against Russia. And Silvio Berlusconi had made comments against uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, but just a few days before the election, he went on national television to to, appall, to defend Putin essentially and say that he had he was forced to invade uh, Ukraine and that all he really wanted to do was replace Zelensky's government with some decent people and then leave. But he he faced un, uh, un, unpredictable uh, resistance. So. Uh, I don't know how that's going to change uh, Meloni's position. I would doubt it would change it much uh, just because she's said repeatedly that she supports Ukraine and she has a lot more power than these coalition partners do now. Mm. But Ursula von der Leyen has been very strong on the fact that the EU isn't, uh, I paraphrase here, but isn't taking any nonsense. Well, she came out and made a statement a few days before the election saying that, that the European Union has, has means to deal with uh, a, a coalition that, that causes trouble. I don't, I don't know. I mean, we'll just have to see what, what Meloni does. I, it'll, I mean, her hands are really tied, particularly in terms of the economy. Um, Italy got some 200 
billion um, euros in, in in funds from 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 the European Union to help it with its its post pandemic recovery plan. And this was the plan that that former prior outgoing Prime Minister Mario Draghi was ushering through. Um, but there's very little wiggle room, given that we're possibly going into a recession, that uh, the costs of energy have has spiked as there's inflation. Italy has this huge debt. So I don't, uh, she, she, she may try and, and make it go off course a bit, but I, I, I think that uh, there's, there's just not going to be much space uh, for her to do much. Mm. Uh, and in terms of migrants, I mean, that has been one of, one of the biggest uh, election issues. How should we expect things to change? I don't think they'll change. I think um, the right-wing governments, politicians like to use the so-called migrant crisis. It's not really a crisis. I mean, every, the, the flows have been fairly predictable. Uh, I, but they 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 use it uh, during elections to to whip people up and get them fearing that there's going to be these these mass invasions. Uh, what I- Italy really needs and what what the certainly the right wing politicians aren't talking about is an immigration policy, a way for people to legally immigrate to Italy, which it really doesn't have now. And I don't see Maloney bringing that in. She mm. just she hasn't talked about it, and and um, she'll probably continue with these sort of bombastic speeches against migrant and about migrant invasion. Uh, finally, Megan, as we know, Italy's governments have rarely passed the two-year mark for decades. Uh, but this rightist bloc could have a strong majority, or indeed does have a strong majority, in both houses of parliament. So does this potentially give the country a rare chance of political stability after, as Ed was saying too, after years of upheaval and fragile coalitions? Could we see this perhaps as a much longer-lasting government? Possibly. It, it, it really depends on, on Meloni because she's holding most of the cards. Uh, she's, she, she comes from you know, a very marginal party traditionally. As we heard four years ago, it had 4% and of, of, of the vote in the elections. I, uh, she, she'll need to draw on a very wide range of experience experienced people, people in the larger right-wing coalition who have had government positions in the past, because certainly the people in her party just don't have the experience. So it will depend on making wise choices about who she puts in various, um, to head various ministries, and also uh, keeping the the right-wing partners uh, close to close to her, um, and as you say, Italy has this long history of of governments falling. Um, we'll just have to see. She's she she hasn't she's she's just had one small government uh, posting uh, under Berlusconi a number of years ago. So really, we don't know much about how she'll lead. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com.
You are listening to The Curator. For those stories this week, Lucinda Elliott is in Quito to see how a new swath of skyscrapers by a collection of international star architects is changing the Ecuadorian capital. Quito is in a moment of flux. The capital of Ecuador, home to over 2 million people and nestled in the foothills of the Andes, is experiencing rapid growth in the form of a population boom and an investment in its infrastructure and public transport. The city's valley, some 2,850 metres above sea level that sits on the equator, has limited how the city has been able to expand. When I first visited Quito a little over a decade ago, the international airport had just been transferred out of town. For decades, aircraft had landed near the city's central park, with the slopes of an active volcano to one side and a line of mountains to the other. This intrepid way of landing had limited the height of buildings in the surrounding area to 16 floors. Once moved to a more suitable and, well, safer location 20 miles east, developers could start considering moving up, with new regulations that today allow buildings of up to 40 storeys. One local developer who's been at the forefront of this change to Quito's skyline is Joseph Schwarzkopf and his family-run firm. Yeah, we're just finishing uh, two projects. Uh, they're in the central park of the city called Carolina. First project is called Icon, Icon with a Q uh, because of Quito. We use the Q because of uh, the city of Quito. We want to brand the projects with the Q so they can have a relation between each other and, uh, and have a relationship with the city too. Icon is a project designed by Jargingles, by Big. It's a very interesting project. It's a concrete sculpture at the end. It has these elements in the facade that uh, are these big planters that you can integrate the park with the building. So it becomes this modern structure of concrete, having all these trees from the park going up and, um, and fulfilling at the end the tallest building in the city. So at the end, you have a modern building having the characteristics of the park that's in front and respecting a lot the public spaces and, and the modernity of all the new city of Quito. I asked how he actually managed to convince some of these big international names to come to Ecuador. I think we're, we're at the end, uh, passionate of design. The company started as an architectural company. Design is in our DNA. And with great modern architecture, you can do spectacular pieces maintaining that and being unique. You know, you don't need to have buildings the same as Miami or New York here. You, you need to have really modern buildings, beautiful design, but with some touch of our culture. And we call it a tropicalizar. Quito has a strong architectural heritage. The colonial old town was the first to be granted cultural status by UNESCO back in 1978, something that lives on. During the recent building of a metro station in Plaza San Francisco, every single paving stone in the square was removed and then replaced by hand to ensure that the old town was preserved. Levels of care that are rare on this young continent. Architect and magazine director Romulo Moya has documented the city's changing landscape for four decades. From his studio, he explained how, unlike other Latin American cities, Quito has transformed at its own pace, with fewer architectural interventions, that means this latest construction boom is for the first time forcing residents to really question how the city is going to look and connect. Quito is, is como 
For many years, and up until recently, Quito was an island in the Andes, stuck in time. That isn't to say that there weren't several sizable architectural interventions, but there haven't been ones that have made a mark on the capital. Unlike in other major cities, where there have been waves of migration and therefore changes to the design and different influences, Quito hasn't quite experienced this. That's why Quito has kept its historic center. It's the biggest of its kind in Latin America and impeccably preserved. And this has given the city its identity and an identity across everything. It has been a reference for all city dwellers, further reiterated by its cultural heritage status. That strong colonial identity, together with perhaps its more traditional, tight-knit society, has made it harder for modern designs to settle in. Having visited again, it feels like today the city is laying the tracks for where it sees itself in the future. And though there will be disagreements about how to do it, there's optimism about the city's potential for change. And from food neighborhoods, we hear from the executive chef of Hong Kong's Salistera restaurant, Carrie Doherty. Good afternoon. My name is Kerry Doherty, and I'm the executive chef of the Upper House. I'm speaking to you today from our 49th floor restaurant, Salastera, overlooking my favorite city in the world, Hong Kong. Today, I'll be sharing with you our recipe for stracciatella with minted peas and broad beans. It's a really simple dish, perfect for any time between late spring and the end of summer. So first, we're going to want to take the stracciatella out of the fridge two to three hours before serving. We want to serve it at room temperature as this really enhances the creaminess and generally just makes the dish eat a whole lot better. The next step is to cook the broad beans in boiling salted water. So we'll first remove the beans from their pods and depending on where we are in the season and the size of the beans, we'll adjust the cooking time anywhere from one and a half to two and a half minutes. Once we've cooked the beans, we'll place them in a large bowl of ice water to cool them down and help preserve that vibrant green color. We'll then take them out of the water and remove them from their skins. The next step will be to shell the sugar snap peas. We're going to serve these raw. They'll be crunchy, fresh and sweet, and they'll provide a wonderful textural contrast to the soft cheese and cooked broad beans. Simply remove them from the pod. We'll next pick some beautiful mint leaves, lay them on top of each other and chiffonade them. The next step is to combine the broad beans and sugar snap peas in a small mixing bowl, dress with extra virgin olive oil, season with Maldon sea salt, give a quick squeeze of lemon juice, taste and adjust the seasoning if necessary. You're going to want to use a top quality extra virgin olive oil, something really green and peppery with hints of artichoke and a good balance between the bitterness and spice. Finally, we'll place the room temperature stracciatella in a serving bowl, drizzle a generous amount of the olive oil over and around the stracciatella, then place the beans and peas on and around the cheese and place the mint chiffonade over the cheese and vegetables. Last but not least, we'll microplane some fresh lemon zest over the whole lot to make it sing and serve with some grilled sourdough or baguette that's been seasoned with olive oil and salt. Super simple, rich, fresh, and delicious. Easy to execute at home. I hope you enjoy this dish as much as we do. Thank you very much. Fancy a read on one of Europe's freshest regions? You are in luck. The Monocle Book of the Nordics is out now. 
Inside we profile how quiet diplomacy, thoughtful design and recent debate, plus the odd steamy sauna, have made this part of Northern Europe one of the world's best places to visit, understand or call home. There's a real sense that these are places that should be part of a broader debate about how we think about the world that we live in, how we think about making cities, making food, making clothes, making furniture. Taking in design, art and culture across Denmark, Finland, Sweden, Norway and Iceland, our book brings the Nordics to you. Head to monocle.com forward slash books to order your copy of the Monocle Book of the Nordics today. Tak and kiitos. Monocle's October issue includes a style special where we check in with industry players, meet the dapper gents of the great American South and offer seasonal looks for your wardrobe. Plus tips from London's talented tailor, Bianca Saunders. Let's have a longer sleeve and not to be too short. And then whether you want your shirt to like show underneath your jacket is another consideration that I look at for a good suit. We also hit the streets of Rio de Janeiro ahead of the presidential elections in Brazil to see why divisions have flourished in the country's second largest city. The whole Brazilian cultural market, theatre, poetry, even the media was deeply wounded by the Bolsonaro administration. Now I can be a little optimistic. I guess that's about to come to an end. Plus our regular roundup of culture cuts, hotel openings and restaurant reviews to shape your schedule for autumn. Order your copy of Monocle's October issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. You are listening to the curator for Monocle on Design Extra. At this year's Feria Habitat, we find out more about the handy stool from the Spanish furniture producer, Selex. Well, the handiest tool is a product designed by Stephen Phillips um, from Arup, and we decided to cooperate with him because we had a previous collaborations with him. The handiest tool in the very beginning uh, was uh, a stool designed to be an auxiliary chair for offices because we detected that in the offices sometimes the, uh, an auxiliary chair was required, but the market is uh, more clever than us and decide to go to other spaces that we never thought that this stool could be used. So now we are selling not just in offices, but as well in residential houses, cultural spaces, learning areas. We were thinking in auxiliary chairs, but now it's used as an occasional table at home. Even in some museums, we, we are very happy to be in the museum in Florencia. There are a lot of different uses with this. Even in some cases, in hotels, are using this stool inside the shower. So oh, really? the market always surprises us. <laughs> the stool comes in lots of different colors and materials. There's a wooden top on some of them. Why did you choose these materials? Well, we decided to go with this product in polypropylene because we were thinking that an auxiliary chair must be cheap. So we decided to go with polypropylene. For that, we start to produce the stool in eight different colors and besides with two recycled polypropylene colors, that is white and black. Once we have decided that we have to produce this stool in polypropylene, we thought that it was necessary to give him uh, some glamour in some cases and we decide to add the possibility to use wooden tops in different materials like oak or nooks 
and as well with the top to use different fabrics. And in these cases, we are using more than 50 different collections of fabrics to upholster the stool. The stool was launched in 2019, but this is the first time you're presenting it to the Spanish market. How has it been received here? Because the pandemic, we were not able to show the stool in Spain, and we are very happy with the results of this stool. From the very beginning, the feedback of the market was very positive with this stool, and now here in Valencia, the feedback of the customers and the visitors is, is great. So we are more than happy with this stool. And this week's Monocon culture, the team looked at music press in general. One of our staff, Andrew Muller, of course, he muses on his former life as a music journalist. Annoyingly, probably the closest rock journalism ever got to any coat-of-arms-friendly encomium of pithy acclaim for its virtues was delivered by Frank Zappa. Rock journalism, quipped Zappa, is people who can't write interviewing people who can't talk for people who can't read. We were far, far too indulgent as a trade of Zappa's interminable self-pleased jazz rock skronking. Seriously, dude enjoyed decades of critical acclaim for making this atrocious racket. And that's the thanks we get. Cram it, Frank. Alert listeners will have clocked the we in relation to rock journalists. Your correspondent was one. Indeed, is one in two divergent respects. One, in that I still knock out the odd record review from time to time, though these are now, often as not, reviews of the reissues of the reissues of the reissues of records I can just about remember reviewing the first time. Two, in that you never really stop being a rock journalist, or to borrow from a song routinely and rightly derided by me and my kind, you can check out any time you like, but you can never really leave. For better, and doubtless for worse, you never quite grow out of the instincts for irreverence and iconoclasm which underpin the genre at its best. There is a long version of my own rock journalism story, and it may be read in the memoir It's Too Late to Die Young Now, which, appropriately too, its anchoring in the indie rock milieu of the early to mid-1990s remains a stretch short of recouping the advance. Copies still available is what I'm saying. Excellent Christmas gift for middle-aged uncles. The short version is that I began writing about music for a Sydney street paper as a teenage idiot. My job consisted of doing things like interviewing strange Melbourne art punk collective Tism, it's short for This Is Serious Mum, who were having an unlikely chart hit with their double album Great Trucking Songs of the Renaissance and who would only communicate by fax machine. Then, somehow, as an early 20-something idiot, I lucked into a job at the British rock weekly Melody Maker. As a consequence, I got to spend much of my 20s clowning around the world with rock bands and getting paid really quite outstandingly badly for the privilege. Of highlights, there were many. 
I interviewed almost all the people whose posters I'd pinned up in adolescent bedrooms. I went on tour with, among many others, U2, Pearl Jam and The Cure. The Cure, in particular, were an education in the obvious truth that you don't really grasp until you see it up close, i.e. that the people in these groups are, well, people, and as such people with dimensions beyond what they distill into their records. I probably thought that after hours' time with The Cure would involve sipping absinthe and exchanging quips from Rambo and Baudelaire. It turned out to involve, on their tour bus somewhere outside Chicago, rousing drunken choruses of middle-of-the-roads, chirpy, chirpy, cheap, cheap. You haven't really heard it until you've heard it in the same voice that sang pictures of you. Low lights were almost as plentiful, although the one that can still provoke the occasional 3am lurch from a nightmare is the recollection of trying to prize sufficient quotable copy from the Falls, legendarily cantankerous Marquis e. Smith, who I genuinely feared throughout our encounter was about to thump me for the transgression of having turned up wearing shorts. Look, it was hot, and I still had the legs for it. But rock journalism was also great training for other kinds of journalism. It taught you to adapt to shifting circumstances, to think and write quickly, and to never take yourself even slightly seriously. Indeed, rock journalism of the time was a kind of hack's equivalent of national service, a chance to develop, to learn, to see the world, and with less chance of getting shot at though that wasn't entirely unheard of. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And to end the curator, more music for you. Here is our special global countdown, where we look at the number one songs in Brazil in the last five presidential elections. Fernando, welcome to the show again as it's Thursday. And has your elections there inspired this week's countdown? Yes, and I have to say, Georgina, sorry, you're going to become an expert on Brazilian music very soon. <laughs> I'm feeling very inspired about this election. So I decided today to look at the top songs in the last five presidential elections uh, here in Brazil. And, you know, it's a pleasure talking to you from Rio. I was in Sao Paulo. I've landed here uh, last night, actually. Uh, it's raining a lot. It's a beautiful city. It's very tropical. It's always, it always makes me feel good to be in Rio. But I'm here as well because tonight we have the final TV debate between the candidates. And this is a big, big event in Brazil, which I'll be talking on tomorrow's Globalist, uh, perhaps with you, Georgina. Uh, but today is all about music. Well, let's start then. Uh, which year have you chosen to begin with? Well, let's start in 2018, which is the year Jair Bolsonaro won the presidency of Brazil. You know, the whole world was shocked. And it's interesting that the number one song comes from a Bolsonaro voter. He already declared his vote. He's a countryside singer. We're going to hear a clip of his song. It's Gustavo Lima with Zé da Recaída, which means Zé from Relapse. Let's have a listen. <laughs> Pra completar essa chamada Atende aí O Zé da recaída tá ligando aí Eu não tô nem aí Se salvou meu nome assim O importante que ao vivo Você me chama de benzinho Atende aí O Zé da recaída 
It's interesting, Georgina, because the art world and let's say the music world in Brazil is fairly divided. Country, uh, I think, as you know, is the most popular genre listened by many Brazilians. And most of their big stars are actually Bolsonaro supporters. But I would say the rest of the spectrum when it comes to pop, rock, hip hop, funk, the majority of those are probably going for Lula. So there's a little bit of a division here. I don't want to generalize here. There are a lot of uh, country singers that are not pro Bolsonaro, especially female country singers, which has been a recent uh, trend in the last decade here in Brazil. But yeah, we have that song. Uh, and can you believe that for this song, he was paid a million reais by a whiskey brand called uh, Grand Old Par. So it was kind of a, a business collaboration, this song as well. Extraordinary. Uh, tell us then what happened in 2014. 2014 was the re-election of Dilma Rousseff. As we know, she was impeached uh, in 2016. So it was quite a tough uh, second government for her. And, you know, perhaps, you know, showing that this would happen to her. It's another country track, actually. And number two, I can't really tell you that if they are if they are Bolsonaro supporters, but there's been quite a lot of controversies, very dodgy controversies about those two. Uh, let's have a listen. It's a very kind of romantic. They're brothers as well. It's Victor and Leo with Tudo Com Você, All With You. Não tenha medo de dizer Tudo de você é só meu Só o amor Faz It is a bit uh, too mellow, but they were quite popular at the time, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you say, I mean, a, a lot of controversy of, over that particular leader at that time. But in 2010, how was the country looking? Well, 2010, something a bit more exciting. It's still a little bit country, but there's a, some touches of pop music as well. I mean, the song's called Adrenaline. What can you expect? <laughs> um, and Luan Santana, this artist uh, that was number one in 2010, I don't know who he's voting for. He's on the fence. So I don't want, of course, uh, you know, say anything wrong here. But I did see a, a picture of him wearing a T-shirt called Save Pantanal, which is the wetlands of Brazil, a protected area. So, I mean, clearly he's got some environmentally, he clearly is an environmentally minded uh, person. I don't know. What does, does that tell you? Would he support Bolsonaro? Perhaps not. Perhaps not. <laughs> exactly. Shall, shall we have a listen number uh, from 2010? Luan Santana, Adrenalina. And finally, Georgina, one interesting thing about Luan Santana, many of the artists we've played, he's from Mato Grosso do Sul in the center west of Brazil. It's definitely not the most populated region, but a lot of artists seem to come from that region, particularly country music artists as well. So that's quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And that was certainly a bit more lively than the other ones we've been hearing. Um, if we go now to 2006, that's our, our next year. Uh, and of course, that was the, the last time that we had Lula. 
Exactly. That was uh, Lula's reelection. And interesting enough, he might come back uh, this year as well. And I think this is a happy track. And I kind of wish Brazil would go back to these times, at least musically. It's a, it's a genre called funk melody. It's a very sweet genre. I, I have a feeling you would like this, Georgina. It's, I mean, this song, I, you know, I was here in Brazil that, that year. It was playing everywhere. He's from Rio. It's MC Leozinho. Ela só pensa em beijar. She only thinks to kiss. Let's have a listen. Desperto desejo, eu lembro do seu beijo e não paro de sonhar. Ela só pensa em beijar, 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 beijar. E vem comigo dançar, 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 dançar. Vem viver esse sonho, eu te proponho. Oh my God, this song makes me so happy, you know, because we have so we have so many tracks now about cheating, about suffering. You know, this is this is happy. You know, he says, if she dances, I dance. It's a very it's very sweet. And I think Brazil perhaps need a little bit of this optimism back. I mean, this was number one in 2006, you know, yeah. that shows the mood of the country, perhaps. And what was the mood in 2002? <laughs> I mean, I, I got to be honest here. I never I never lie. I mean, it is. A little bit interesting. It's the only actually song in English from the ones we've played. And I mean, I know it's going to sound very random, but again, this band, for some reason, they are big in Brazil. You know, those bands you say they're big in Japan, the calling, for some reason, they're huge in Brazil. And in fact, they are coming back to the country in December. Uh, they have already shows in Rio, uh, I think in Belo Horizonte, in Sao Paulo. And I'll tell you why this song was such a big hit. But first, let's have a listen. The calling. Whatever you will go. I'm sure you're a bit confused, Georgina. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's interesting. This track, we had a country version of the song in Portuguese. It's called Pra Onde Você For. It was the soundtrack of a soap opera. It's quite interesting because it, it's difficult. Of course, we listen to foreign music, but to reach the top of the charts, a, a song in English or in any other language, it's quite difficult in Brazil. We have a big internal market. So, you know, it, it is. Uh, it, it was a big success. And funnily, I was just typing the call. I was doing some research last night and I said, oh my God, they're coming to Brazil. Uh, you know, they, they, they haven't been as popular as at the time of the song. But uh, yeah, they're back. They have a huge fan base here, apparently. Uh, and Fernando, so you're in Rio tonight. Now, I know that you've been sort of around the country, but you've been staying in Sao Paulo with your, your mother. You've been seeing your grandmother. Presumably, mm-hmm. you've been there being a good son. But now you're in a hotel in Rio. What are you going to be dancing to when you inevitably go out tonight after the debate? Yes, well, you know, Brazilians, we, the debates here tend to finish very late. Uh, who knows, maybe uh, the song from 2006, because Rio is the land of funk music. And, you know, they they love shaking their bodies. I mean, it's a great city for music. So if I have time, if I can squeeze in a, a check-in after the Globalists, I might go dancing indeed to MC Lauzinho. Well, that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. 
Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the shows here on Monaco 24. Thanks for listening.